welcome back to God's Work Displayed. It's been a while, much longer than I had anticipated. And, um, yeah, I don't have a reason. I just got busy, I guess. And so I've been putting off recording this episode. This episode is going to talk about adoption. And we're going to hit on a couple different things within uh, this episode. We'll probably break this up into parts to kind of help you kind of keep track of what's what's what. Because there's a couple different theological concepts of adoption, really. So there is probably what you typically think of, and we're going to be spending the most time on, is making someone a part of your family who's not biologically related to you necessarily, although they can be, um, ha- making them a part of your family, but particularly a child, uh, adopting a child into your family so that they become an uh, an heir to you. There's also the idea, um, it's a similar idea, that we have in the New Testament about being uh, adopted into God's family and being a joint heir with Jesus, as the song goes, but it, it says that in Scripture too, so that we... Um, share in the inheritance that Jesus receives from God the Father because he is God the Son. So that's the other one. And then there's a third one we really won't discuss uh, because it's a, li- it's a little weirder and it has to do with this heretical idea of adoptionism. That's what's called adoptionism. And it basically uh, is a strange view of uh, basically saying that Jesus was not divine, that he was, um, he was adopted into God's family, and then through that, that's a weird heretical idea that was squelched way back in church history. Uh, if you're interested, I encourage you to check out some church history, um, and even systematic theologies should have that as a discussion. But uh, like I said, we won't we won't deal with that. So if you hold to that, you're wrong. So. <laughs> That's that's where we are with that. Uh, so that's the plan for this episode. And we'll, we'll um, hit on that and then we'll just talk about why it's important to know about adoption and to consider how we will respond to this information. How do we respond when we think about the reality of adoption of, of um, people into our family? And how do we think about the reality of adoption into God's family? And these are, these are actually intricately tied together. Um, and really, uh, they, they inform one another in a lot of ways. Okay? So we'll, be, uh, we'll actually read um, a judgment of adoption. Um, so I, I have an adoptive son. And we will uh, read part of his judgment of adoption. We won't read all of it. But we'll read part of it. It's not too long, actually. Uh, to hear what what the at the time uh, we were in the state of Kentucky, so we it happened through that. Uh, we'll read what that state declared as reality, legal reality, and, and in a sense, then made it into um, a real reality, like what is what is true about our family. And then we'll we'll look at that and what that means. Uh, we'll look at some other options of adoption. We'll discuss. Should we adopt? Should we not? What's the point of that? We'll even get into some foster care questions and issues. 
Uh, and we'll also look at the biblical notion of adoption and what that means and why that's important. What adopting like a child informs us about the adoption of being in God's family, but also what being adopted into God's family, uh, that concept informs us about adoption here. So there's, that's what I said, I, I can't tease them apart a lot of times because I, I think of it in, in, in a one, uh, essentially one lump. It's all tied together and it can't be separated. And I think there's a beauty to that. I think that that's, that's how God intended that to be. Adoption, in a sense, is a response to a broken world. You see, we are the only reason God adopts us into his family is because we sinned. We are, and when we sin, we are not part of God's family. You are not a child of God unless you are trusting in the finished work of Christ. So when people say, oh, we're all God's family, that's not true. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scriptures are very clear that only believers in Christ are the children of God. They're the ones that are adopted into God's family. And, and additionally, we have a broken world because of sin. And as a result, we have death, we have um, consequences of sin that aren't necessarily death. And because of that, it, it leads to, to a fragmentation of biological families. And so there's always a bitterness that's associated with adoption that, you, that I want you to, to, to meditate on as well. When we get into it, we'll talk more about this. But whenever someone has to be adopted, that means that there was a bond broken to require that adoption, either through death or through a voluntary termination of rights or through involuntary termination of rights. Either way, all of that is painful. And so there's adoption is bittersweet always. Always. And too often people don't think clearly about it. Adoption is beautiful. There's no question about it. But because of those broken bonds, we have to reflect on the reality of why this adoption came about. Why did it have to happen? And that holds true also with being adopted into God's family. We were sinners. We have broken God's law. We are separated from God. And as a result, we had no hope except that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus into this world to save us. Now think about that. So Jesus came down from his, his perfect existence in heaven, okay? He, no problems anything. And he came as a baby in a poor family and lived a life, a hard life, okay? Life in first world, 21st century America has enough burdens but imagine the additional burdens of living in first century Palestine when you reflect on the history of all that and the, la the, the, the difficulties. And Jesus not only just lived a life, he lived a perfect life, resisted sin. He was tempted in every way and resisted. He was mocked. He was tortured. 
he was put on a cross, felt all that physical pain, but he, more importantly, he bore the wrath of God. He bore our sins. He took all that on and then died. And then he was resurrected. And through that perfect work, through that magnificent piece of, 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 of love for us, sacrificial love, we can now be adopted into God's family. How glorious a joy that is to be in God's family. And yet there is a bitterness that we have to reflect on. What Jesus has done for us. So, this episode as we walk through uh, the theological and the practical realities of adoption, I don't want us to just think that adoption is all um, jazz hands and, and happy good times. There is a sadness that is inherent to it. But the joy is greater. So, get your Bibles out. Uh, we're going to look at Scripture. To, hey, take some notes if you want. And we're going to get into this. At the end of the episode, if you have questions, you know, reach out to me. If you know me personally, you know how to get in touch with me personally. But you can also email me at godsworkdisplayed at gmail.com. And um, I hope you have questions. I hope you have lots of questions. Ones where I can maybe direct you to resources on how to be involved in the concept of adoption, whether it's fostering or adopting or helping people adopt or any of that constellation of things. Additionally, I want you to be meditating, reflecting on the reality that if you're in Christ, you are adopted into God's family. So let's let's get started. to read a section of the judgment of adoption uh, that my wife and I had when we adopted our son, or one one of our sons. I'm going to leave out some of the um, identifying information just because it's not relevant. But I want you to hear how civil government in the United States views adoption and so we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to look at the passage in Scripture and see how they're similar and how they're different and, and what that means for us. So we adopted our son when he was an infant, and so it does say that he is an infant in this document. So um, here's how it goes. And this is actually about halfway through the judgment of adoption, and believe it or not, it's, it's not a very long thing. These are, these are not very long. It reads, the infant from and after the date hereof shall be deemed the child of the petitioners and shall be considered for all purposes of inheritance and succession and for all other legal considerations the natural and legitimate child and heir at law of the petitioners and same as if born of their bodies with all the obligations, rights, and privileges of such a natural child and heir. 
the parental control of the infant. It's hereby granted the petitioners and the petitioner shall hereafter be under the same responsibility to the said infant child and be entitled to the same rights and privileges as if he were their natural child and the said infant shall be shall from the date hereof have no legal relationship to his birth parents in respects to either personal or property rights. So we're back <clears throat> after I read that little uh, section of the judgment of adoption uh, for my youngest son. So we, now we need to kind of look at, okay, what is, what is adoption? What, what does that mean? What do we learn about adoption in the Scripture? What is adoption in our context, and even in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman context, teach us about what it, adoption is talked about in Scripture? Like, how, how do they inform one another? And that's sometimes a little uncomfortable for some people because they think that Scripture is written in a vacuum um, and that words only mean what they mean in Scripture and they're not influenced by anything else. But we know that that's not based in reality or based in truth. We know that Scripture was written in a context. It was written in a historical, cultural literary context. Uh, there's legal precedences they reference. Jesus even references in the Gospels a tower falling and people dying. He's, he's referencing things there. You know, in John, we, he ta we talk about how Jesus is in um, Solomon's portico on the Feast of Dedication. Well, it's referencing Hanukkah, which is a result of the Maccabean Revolt. So, we have a lot of context, and so it's helpful to explore what Scripture says about adoption and to understand what was happening at the time about adoption and looking at how does our modern adoption concepts uh, maybe influence our interpretation of Scripture. Maybe our modern adoption contexts are pretty similar to the ancient context of, of, of adoption. So... Let's first. I want to. I want to look at maybe some Paul's. Um, really, Paul's the one who to writes on adoption the most, partly because his corpus in the New Testament is one of the largest, and partly because he's dealing with uh, certain uh, legal uh, issues. Uh, and at his in his setting, adoption was common, or at least normal within the Greco-Roman context. Adoption, we don't really see that in the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about that. Because um, we had leveret marriage and some other issues going on there, so there was a form of adoption, in a sense. Um, so let me give you a good idea of, of how this happens, because a lot of people get confused about what leveret marriage is. And we, we see some weird cases in the Old Testament. We also see... Uh, the Sadducees try to trip Jesus up at one point in the New Testament on this regard. But I want you to think back to the book of Ruth. Okay? So if you remember, Naomi is married to Elimelech, and they <clears throat> go into Moab with their sons, Megalon and Chilion. And I probably mispronounced those names, but that's okay. They go into they go into Moab, right? Because there's a famine in Israel in Palestine at that time. So they're like, oh, well, we need to go Moab. There's better uh, opportunities there for food, for life, all that. So they go. Well, what happens? Eventually, Elimelech dies and Malon and Chilion die. So that leaves Naomi. Well, Malon and Chilion had wives. 
uh, Orpah and Ruth. So Naomi says, all right, I'm going back to Israel because that's where my people are. I can find some support because I know that in Israel we have laws to care for the poor, to care for widows. But it's kind of assumed, uh, based on the context of how it's written, that Ruth and Orpah are still of childbearing age. And so Naomi says, go back to your your Moabite people. Go back to your families and remarry. Uh, live a life. Move on from, from this nightmare, essentially. Uh, and then we have these beautiful passages. They're truly beautiful. Um, in Hebrew even, but in English it is. Uh, Orpah initially refuses to consent and then eventually she does go back but Ruth refuses to go back to Moab hold on a second sorry I'm in the car recording and there's big trucks driving by for a second okay so Ruth goes back I'm I'll try to edit that out but if it doesn't it, there you go uh, real life so Ruth goes back uh, with Naomi because Ruth says no I am of your people now because I follow Yahweh. So she goes back. So then there's this whole thing with her uh, gleaning the leftovers of the harvest and the the barley harvest in the field. And so this is high sum. Well, uh, so this is, you know, harvest time. Uh, And she ends up in the field of Boaz, right? So there's this whole thing of, you know, basically a courtship of of Ruth and Boaz, right? And then there's this thing where there's actually a kinsman redeemer who is closer, more closely related to Naomi than Boaz, okay? And why does it matter about Naomi? Well, Naomi is the, is the matriarch in a sense, and so whoever's closest, most closely related to her would be responsible for ensuring that Elimelech's line does not die out, okay? So, or in this case, uh, Malon and Chilion. So, and I can't remember if they specify which one's older. And so, whoever is responsible for that, the children they have with Ruth will actually not be that person's uh, heir. They will be the line of Elimelech's heir. Okay, so that's the lever at marriage. So, uh, and so there's there's pros and cons to that for whoever does that. Uh, one that, that their firstborn wouldn't be their heir. Uh, it's kind of confusing at times. And so, and maybe then that means you're not getting much land. Maybe that you are getting some land. It, it it varies. So that's a dilemma because Boaz cannot marry her and extend the line of Elimelech if he goes around this kinsman and redeemer. So he has to set it up, and we see in the story how, like, hey, man, you got kinsman and redeemer, you've got a task before you. How do you how do you deal with this? You know, are you going to marry Ruth or not? Because, you know, she's Naomi's daughter-in-law, so extend the line, all this, on and on. And at first it seems like he's he's going to do it, he's going to marry her, and then he's like, no, I no. And there's, and there's reasons, and I encourage you to read Ruth to see that. And so Boaz then is able to marry Ruth and have uh, Obed, right? Who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. So it's the line of Elimelech. So in fact, David is not descended from, legally, the line of 
Boaz, he's descended legally from the line of Elimelech, Elimelech or um, specifically his sons, and and I'm and it, I can't like I said I can't remember who who's who. So that's kind of so in a sense, Obed is sort of Boaz's adopted son, but sort of not, and that's kind of how that lever at marriage works. It's it's kind of strange. It's a beautiful. It's a really neat way of preserving family lineage, but it's it's not the same as how we think of adoption. The way we think of adoption is actually really similar to the way they thought of it in Greco-Roman culture. Similar. Now, typically, adoptions in Greco-Roman culture would occur with adults. <laughs> um, uh, Romans is this famous um, kind of thing. Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, who would become Caesar um, Augustus, right? And Octavian was already an adult. And the way it worked was he was... He was blood-related, if I remember the details correctly, but he was, he was like a nephew. He didn't need to adopt him in terms of like showing that he's related. Why he adopted him was so that partly they bound the families more closely together, but he saw in Octavian character traits that he liked that he wanted to take over for him. So essentially, Julius Caesar had a plan. You know, he wanted to kind of rule over Rome to some level, and he knew that Eventually he would die as he was aging, and so he wanted a protege to take over for him, and he saw within Octavian what he wanted, and so, because he was pretty disappointed in Mark Antony at that point. So he, he adopted Octavian, which meant Octavian got all of Caesar's stuff once Caesar died. So there you go. And people knew that. So that was, and that was very common to occur in Greco-Roman culture. And so, and you could see it at different levels. It was typically in the higher levels, okay? So I want you to think about that. The higher levels of society, the elite, who typically have that. So, but we also have to remember that there was, you could have done it with other things. It just wasn't common. And so within this culture, Paul writes different letters to these Greco-Roman churches. And... Um, one of the, so one of the first places we see this, um, one of the really neat places to see this is in Ephesians, okay? In the beginning of Ephesians, we see this uh, magnificent description of who God is and what he has done for us. And in Ephesians 1, we see Paul reference adoption. And what it says, he, and he's referencing God, predestined us believers, to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Like Caesar, giving immense power, God has adopted believers. And so he has adopted them as sons and daughters. Paul gives a little more description in Romans, in Romans 8.15, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Okay, no more slavery. Remember, that was common. So you're no longer a slave. But you have received a spirit of adoption. You've gone from slaves to adopted sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We have been taken out of slavery and placed into the family of God. 
he goes on in in Romans to talk more about being adopted into God. There's there's a mixture of we are adopted now, but uh, there's still a full adoption to occur. Already not yet. Um, and so he just finds it's a powerful statement of we have been removed from this old way of living, this old family in a sense, and we've been placed in a new family. And what does that mean? It means we we are heirs. We are told later on in different sure that we are we are heirs with Jesus. Um, and so as we reflect on that, what what does that mean for us now? And what does that mean for us as we move forward thinking about adoption in our context? And and when I say our context, I'm in America in uh, it's 2022, so things could change. Maybe this podcast will exist in 100 years. I doubt it. But adoption might look different then. But we have laws. Each state has different laws even. And if you're interested in adoption, you should check your, your state laws about adoption. Um, and it's very complex to describe what that is, but each state has their own laws on adoption. A lot of it's very similar, but there are some distinctions in that. So, we talked about adoption, but we earlier, you heard me read through the Judgment Adoption, it talked about heirs, right? And... When we think about that, we have to remember that when we are um, adopted, we become inheritors, right? We inherit something. So, if my when my parents die, they I mean everybody will die if the Lord tarries. And so, typically, if you don't even have a will, a lot of times when you die, you're you're whatever's left over goes to your, your nearest kin, which would be your children, if, if both parents die. If, if Yeah, depending on how the finances are set up. But So, if, when my parents die, unless they specify that certain people get certain things, the inheritance will go to myself and my sisters, right? And so, automatically, we do nothing to get that. I am automatically an inheritor. And like we read in the Judgment Adoption, my youngest son is automatically an inheritor. He will share that inheritance with his brother when my wife and I die. Did he do anything for it? No. He exists. That's what he did. And like us, being adopted into Christ, we inherit the riches of God. How do we do it? How? What did we do to earn it? Absolutely nothing. In Romans 8.17, remember I read 8.15 earlier. So in Romans 8.17, Paul explains more. So he talks about how we're sons, we cry out, Abba, Father. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, or older joint heirs, and that song, Joint Heirs with Jesus, as we travel this song. So, Fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We are even told that we are, in Galatians, we are told we're Abraham's heirs. He says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. 
and he goes on in Galatians. He he spends some time about comparing slaves and adopted and heirs. And so we, it's just this beautiful thing. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we'd be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, and then um, there's this, he continues on. The scripture just is awesome in this. James, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Friends, we, we are heirs of Christ when we are adopted into the family of God through Jesus. Don't ignore that. You have been brought into this family and you will continue to be in this family. Just as you continue to love Christ and suffer with Him, then you will be glorified with Him. So as we continue this, so we're going to shift in just a second. We're going to look at what that means to, to some... To talk about specifically how we respond. Since we've been adopted in Christ, how should we respond as being joint heirs with Jesus? Should we adopt? Should we foster? Should we do all that? That's the question we have at hand. So that's what we're going to address next. This part of the podcast episode, we're going to talk about the more... Practical applications of adoption in regards to should we adopt, should we not? Is that required of us or is it not? Uh, and if we feel like it's required, why do we? If we feel like it's not required, why why do we not? Or where where should we stand on this? Well, I'm going to reference back to those previous passages uh, we read through earlier. Uh, Ephesians, Romans, even parts of Galatians. We have been adopted into God's family. But nowhere in Scripture is there a command to adopt. However, there are very clear commands in Old and New Testament to care for the widows, orphans, stranger. And I, as I've talked about in early, other podcast episodes in my book, uh, that is really just a catch-all for any person who is vulnerable, who is vulnerable to exploitation, to abuse, any of those kind of things. And so, is there a requirement to adopt? I would say no, there is no requirement to adopt. Is there a requirement to care for those who uh, have no other family? Yes. We are called to care for people. We care for widows. Most often we care for widows uh, if they don't have other family, let's say. Typically, if, let's say, you have a widow uh, who's, let's say, in her 60s or 70s, and she has adult children who, can, who live nearby and can care for her, then the expectation is that they will care for her. We will check. We will ensure that she's cared for, certainly. But the majority of the, the care should be on the our immediate family, if they're believers. If they're not, we may step in as a church. And this, I'm not talking about my individual church. I'm talking about 
each of us at our churches, our individual congregations, would step in to care for her. <clears throat> so likewise, within an orphan or someone who is um, in foster care or something like that, where there's there's not care for them, then our prerogative, our command is to care for them. And there are lots of different ways on how we care for them. So part of that is because different families are called to do different things. It's not a universal command in regards to how you care for them. So there's universal commands throughout Scripture, uh, we, particularly in the law of Christ. So we see love one another, honor one another, show preference for one another, bear one another's burdens, those kind of things. It doesn't matter who you are in Christ. Every person in Christ is commanded to do those. Likewise, we are commanded to care for those. But it does not tell us how we do that. And a lot of times, we're not told how to love one another. I will love someone, different people, different ways that are appropriate. And that's perfectly permissible. In fact, that's preferred. Um, I will love a brother in Christ differently than I will love, love a sister in Christ. If I have a uh, good friend at church who's male... I will love him in a different way than a friend at church who is female. That's just how it's going to have to be. Partly because personalities, but partly because of my interactions necessarily to respect them in their different ways. Likewise, each family isn't called to adopt. Let me be explicit about that. Each family is not called to adopt, but many families are called to adopt. Many families are called to foster children. Uh, and I want to first say a little piece about the foster care system. In the United States, I think most people would agree with me who have any understanding of how, how it works, the foster care system in the United States is completely broken. Every No state has it worked out right. Part of that reason why it is broken is that it has started off broken. The fact that the church has outsourced care of orphans to the state by definition means it's broken now some of you aren't going to like that some of you are going to push back on that but I'm telling you that the church has the greater authority and the greater impetus to care for those in need and so when we outsource to the state we are outsourcing our love. We are refusing to obey the commands of Scripture. But for us now, it's hard to undo that. So what I will say is that that is why many people are called to foster. So let's start breaking up. Let's, let me discuss the different things within uh, the United States. I can only speak to, to how adoptions functions in the United States and only in a limited manner. I've only been involved in two states essentially. So I don't know all the laws. Each So let's just start with that. So in the United States there is really no federal laws about adoption except for one and it has to do with Native American children uh, and that's a little more complicated. So um, if you're interested in a, adoption and, and the child available for adoption uh, is um, Native American, then there's a lot 
more involved with that than your typical adoption, what we call domestic adoption. Okay, so in the United States, though, outside of that, every state has their own adoption laws. Now, why are there adoption laws? Why are they stringent? Why do they exist? So part of the reason we have adoption laws, and they are going to be worded in certain ways, is because they have to ensure that it is not human trafficking. Okay? Not the buying and selling of people. So, with adoption, you never pay for a child. Okay, <laughs> let's be explicitly clear. that You never pay for a child. What you do pay for are services rendered. So, for us, we went through... We, we actually had a failed adoption. And I'm not going to go into detail because it, it's still hard to deal with. Um, so, but we, so, I know this well about this issue. When you go to, like, say, an adoption agency, you will pay them for a home study, okay? So, if, if, so the home study is a service rendered to you by the person who does the home study, right? Okay, that's pretty easy because that's, in a sense, a good, also, if they hand you a home study. Like, it's, it's there in writing. It's in your hand. And they can't really undo what's been done, okay? And those, usually those don't, aren't that expensive either in, in comparison to other costs. But you also oftentimes hire an agency. And what the agency will do is will connect you essentially with women and families who are considering adoption in regards to um, they would like for their child to be adopted or children to be adopted. They're, so they do that service. They work through that. Uh, sometimes, so, so they can't undo that, right? They're doing that. Sometimes you pay for uh, the care of the mother. Okay, so there, and each state has very specific laws about that, how much money can be spent. So what that does that hopefully helps pay for, uh, let's say it's a pregnant woman, and so it pays for her um, care, the fetal care, the uh, prenatal care, uh, care, you know, for some of her stuff, for her food, maybe even for, depending on the state, like uh, clothing or um some other material needs like a, a chair or a couch or a kitchen table, things like the microwave, whatever. It just varies. So that's what happens. So you pay for all these different things. And then you also pay for pay attorneys uh, for the legal work they do to, to do all the paperwork and all that. And I'm not an attorney, so I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but, but they have to do due diligence, and so there's a lot of tedious work that they do on their end. Notice... All of those are to individuals doing services. You never pay for the child. So just a heads up, and adoption is expensive. Part of it is because you are hiring individuals to do some different jobs. You know, if you have a baby, if you biologically, if you um, have a baby, like if you give birth to a child, you technically, well, I mean, you don't have to go to the hospital to give birth. You don't have to go through any stuff to even ensure that you are a suitable parent. You just give birth, right? And you can give birth at home. People do it still free, essentially, right? Um, or if you go to the hospital, though, your insurance, if you have insurance, will, health insurance, will pay for a good portion of it. And there's a whole other issue with that. So we won't talk about that at this time. So, but in state, in domestic adoption in the United States works like that. You, you go to an adoption agency, they kind of walk you through the process, you do home studies, they connect you, and uh, eventually you would, 
be given an option, hey, this mother has this, for example, this child that they would like to be adopted. Uh, are you interested in adopting this child? And they'll give you the details of, of what the circumstances are. And let's say you say yes. So then you give your, you have like a little book a lot of times or something, will profile about your family that the birth mother will then look at. And based on that, they will they will choose that. So it's a it's a, it's never just you picking the child, not like old school orphanages. It's the mother ultimately decides, the biological mother ultimately decides um, who will adopt their child, which I think is a good thing because then um, uh, it, it's more, it's just, a, it's, it's, it creates this kind of dynamic of, of it's not just somebody coming in to be a savior to that person. It's, it's a dual agreement. Um, and in the United States, you don't, as far as I know, um, unless there's a state that has a law about this, you don't do closed adoptions like you used to do. It used to be you wouldn't tell, you didn't want to tell the child they were adopted, they weren't allowed to know that kind of stuff, they hid all the information, all that. Now, that's not the, the norm now. Thankfully, I think that's a bad idea. Um, now it's what's called open adoption, so that... If you, if the birth mother and your family feel comfortable with that, and it depends on circumstances, obviously, um, and safety. Uh, but if you're, you'll, if you're the adoptive parent, so you have total legal rights. So you ultimately, at that point, after the judgment of adoption, have total decision making uh, capacity. You can um, make this decision, but you can have a relationship with the birth mother, mother, uh, or birth parents in this case could be if hopefully um and you can develop relationships so that the child is not completely separated from their birth parents uh it reduces the bitterness let me put it that way that's the hope at least and then that way if you have medical questions like um so for for my adoptive son there are a lot of things we don't know about his medical history not his personal medical history but his family medical history we don't know certain things so in some issues we are we ask ourselves was well, this is this just him or is this something his family you know we don't know if he'll have problems down the line <clears throat> with heart disease or uh, high cancer risk or anything like that because we don't know uh, much about that now our, our adoption was op open but um, at this time the birth mother um, has not been um, forthcoming with wanting to be involved and that's okay that's okay we and here's the other thing we say we never say anything um demeaning about her we always speak highly of her it was i mean in most cases this is a woman who is in pretty bad situation and has um was not expecting to be pregnant and didn't really have the capacity to care well for a child and so she made a a really good choice by by going the adoption route instead of killing a child and so, um, from that, you know, it's just one of those, it's a, it's a complicated situ situation. We're not the only ones like that. That's a lot of times the case in the United States. But sometimes there's good situations where they, they can have relationships. So, um, but it's still an open adoption. And then when the child turns 18, or I would assume 18 in most states, maybe 21 or some, uh, when they reach the age of majority, they can then... Uh, get the information about their birth parents if they so choose to.
and that's also can be a good thing uh, if uh, and, and different families have different opinions on that and in different situations would also determine uh, the wisdom in that so that's kind of how that works that's a really short answer to any questions about that and I can ha hopefully answer any questions through email later on or contact me okay so that's domestic adoption in the United States the next one is international adoption in the United States so that sounds weird so essentially I, because I can only speak from this so American citizens who will adopt from other countries um, that's even more complicated than domestic uh, because each country has their own laws and then the United States has laws to deal with that because of citizenship issues uh, and probably with uh, just how they uh, diplomatic relations with those nations so uh, that can be more complicated uh, we've known friends who have adopted from different uh, countries throughout the world uh, and in fact I have a uh, like a distant cousin who adopted a child from China um, and that was when I was a kid so it wasn't a totally crazy idea for me to hear uh, older when I was older but uh, we were we were at a church at one point who a lot of people were adopting domestically and internationally so uh, we got to interact with a lot of families and we, we still know some of the families who've done that uh, so if you're interested in that same rules though in terms of like the money issues um, you go through agencies they'll connect you and all that kind of stuff um, on this side of the uh, border <laughs> on the other side of the American border it depends on that nation how those all work so you would do totally be dependent on agencies to, to walk you through that and to have those relationships however I will say that a lot of times those <clears throat> situations are you adopt from orphanages so that can be a little more uh, complicated and uh, I'm not sure how often birth parent is involved if at all or if they even know and, and that probably is more complicated um, a lot of times the children in other countries who are available for adoption are also have a lot of um, intellectual or physical disabilities because depending on that country they either have a taboo against people who have disabilities or they're just realistically they know that they do not have the resources to care for them so um, that's that so be prepared for that and then finally foster care which I've already mentioned foster care in the United States uh, that is where uh, a child or children sibling groups oftentimes have been removed from their parents home it, and t typically it would be a biological family but it could be even an adoptive parent um, but they've been forcibly removed from that home and placed in the state's care now sometimes states will find um, next to kin or, or somebody related to that family who can then take the children and that's called kinship care some of you listening may be involved in that um, and I, I yeah that's totally legitimate sometimes it works well sometimes it does not work well at all and it actually makes the situation worse so but the problem is like I said the foster care system is broken and there's a lot of complications with that uh, but if they don't go into kinship care, they then go into the foster care system proper. And each, like I said, each state does it a different way. But essentially, uh, they have foster parents 
who and there's rules for how many kids can be in a home and, and different rules with that but uh, if you go the foster parent way so we've been foster parents before so i can speak to some experience in this and so you go through some training you get certification they do a home study like they do with adoption but um it's a little different than an adoption home study but it's pretty similar too and um also most states are so desperate that they'll make ways for you to be a foster parent and so then you you get certified and when they have a child who needs placement and and you also set you uh, this is true with adoption too you can be specific about who who can come into your home so for us that, that our children were smaller so we said no one over such and such age i think at that time three um because we we didn't want for some safety reasons and, and some things we know uh, we we have a background in working with kids so we we know about that some issues uh, anyways it doesn't matter so we we said certain ages you can you can some foster parents say we only take teenagers we won't take younger kids okay because they don't want to change diapers you know that's legitimate too um and so that's how that kind of works so so you tell them who you will take what you won't take uh kind of those kind of rules uh, sometimes you'll say well we can't take like these medical things or whatever you know we can't deal with that and so and there's some other rule there's certain rules with foster care too like if you i don't advocate spanking but if you have if you spank your children but you foster children you are not allowed to spank them okay um so there, there are some rules on how you parent a foster child as well whereas with the adoptive child you you parent them as you would your a biological child so but foster child you do have some rules around that and, and there's some more involvement in terms of there's the workers and all that kind of stuff and sometimes they'll get to visit their families and it gets yeah so anyway so they'll so the foster so anyways the worker will call you one day and say hey and usually it'll be in the middle of the night hey we have a child who needs placement um and they'll give you the details of the child and usually they'll tell you less terrible things than than is, is true so that you will take the child um, I'm not saying you shouldn't take a child who has maybe some behavior things, but but it's always it's better to know that, and be. I think it's better that they're honest, but a lot of times they won't because they think that nobody will take the child then. Anyway, so they'll um, so then you're unprepared. But they'll they'll call you and say, "Will you take the child?" So if you say yes, we'll take the child, then they'll bring the child with whatever positions they can have with them. Uh, depending on the situation the kids coming out of they may not have anything they can bring with them you know if it's a meth house they can't the kid can't bring anything nothing okay and so the foster care agency the let's say the worker will try to they usually have a supply of like some hand-me-downs or some stuff in their office that they can bring for the child but it may be that you the next day have to go shopping for the child um, and they will give you funds to do that well, they pay you, essentially, um, and so part of those what they pay you for is to provide for the needs of the child. But don't think that you go into foster care to make money. That's not one. You shouldn't do that. But two, like it's not a <laughs> it's it's not a good business plan. They don't pay you enough for for to yeah to to do that unless the kid is like super chill and does everything they're supposed to do, and even then, it's still not not a money making. It's, if you think you can make money off that, you have bad business sense. 
So anyway, so then they'll, the kid will come and they'll look here and then you'll, they'll live in your home and you will treat them in a lot of ways like your child, but a little different because like I said, you have some different rules with the foster child. Um, and depending on their background, you may not hug the child. You may not, because the kid may feel really uncomfortable with that. There may be all kinds of things depending on what, what's happened to that child in their past. So, um, but you will, but I'll tell you, you need to love them and love them well, however they need to be loved. So that's kind of, well, and what happens is then, if the biological parents, they, they are then given a uh, ultimatum, like you got to get your life together or you're going to lose custody of your children. And so they will get on a plan and, and essentially the parents are supposed to do certain things to, to regain custody of their children. Um, if they do not regain custody of the children, the ultimate thing would then be they are the parental rights are terminated, or TPR, Termination of Parental Rights. And at that point, the child then becomes available for adoption. And you can adopt through the foster care agency. There's uh, lots, each state has a, like a way they do that, um, and they're typically older children. That's also a good way to adopt. I would encourage you to look into that. Um, there's not really any cost there. They actually pay you at that point. Uh, but but that child has been through a lot, so be prepared to have to go through a lot of trials with that child. Um, if you are fostering, uh, and you've been let's say you've been fostering the child for a few years, and the parental rights are terminated, you're typically given the first um, go of if if you want to adopt or not, and you can and that's up to your family or not, you know, and there's reasons why you wouldn't, and there's obviously reasons why you would. Um, and so you, you have that option as well. And so that's kind of how you adopt. Uh, oftentimes parental rights are not terminated for a long, long time. Uh, and I understand the reasoning. It has to do with like, well, we really want to give them a chance. We really want to give them a chance. Uh, but I'll say this, the court system is not about when they look at that, they don't care about the child. I mean, that's for, I'll be honest. Uh, I mean, there's some, I'm sure there's some judges who do. But they do not look to the benefit of the child. I'm not even saying that, that the foster parent is the best parent for him. But the child needs to stop being um, dragged along because their parents can't get it together. Now, some parents can and do. We adopted one, or not, I'm sorry, we fostered a child. And those parents were given like some ultimatums. And basically, they got their child back as fast as they possibly could because they worked the plan that they were given and they were serious about it. So I know it's possible. I know that also a lot of times it's due to drug addiction while they're removed and it's not an easy thing. Um, but that's a, that's a different issue. And, and as you see, like it's all tied up with this, uh, the state making decisions, the state making decisions, the state not having the child's interest in mind, it's more of the legality interest in mind. Whereas the church, if the church was stepping in, it would be better. And what the church should do is step in prior to the kid be needing to be removed from the church. The church needs to be where people can go to to say, I'm at my wit's end, I don't know what to do, or, you know, I'm addicted to drugs, I don't know how to to change, I don't know what to do. And the church can then obviously offer the gospel of Jesus to them because that's the only hope they really have, right? But through that hope and through that, 
God works through people's hearts. And so he works through families. He works through the church to redeem people. So oftentimes in America, we talk about, you have altar calls, which is, I have a problem with altar calls at multiple levels. One, there's no altar in the church. And two, it's it's this one-time deal. And people say they're sinner's prayer, and then they're done. Maybe they get baptized, maybe they don't. But they're done. They're saved. They're, and they, get, they go off and do everything else. But that's not how Scripture talks about salvation. Scripture talks about salvation as uh, we are justified and we are redeemed, but we are also being sanctified. We are being changed to be more like Christ. And so the church needs to offer this up as, yes, you're going to have um, times when you take several steps back in your walk with Christ, but we are with you. We are helping you through this. We are calling out your sin because addiction is sin. Okay, It's a form of idolatry, essentially. But I also know that it's a physical thing that's going to be hard to break. So, But a lot of families are broken through that, and so the child's enter into foster care. But what if the church was there to say, okay, we're going to provide um, care for these kids while we help the family get it together. And we don't have to go through legal means to do this. We, don't, we work with the family. They know that the child's being cared for. And then we, it protects families in a lot of ways, and it protects children, okay? Because when in the church, we are not nuclear families, okay? We are not just, we are, we are a family, and so we have to think more like that. We, we've allowed too much of the American dream and the 50s um, ideal of, of what the uh, ideal family is to creep in, and that's nowhere in, the, that's nowhere in Scripture, that's cultural rather than scriptural. So, um, so I've given this a, a long explanation. I feel like, and there's probably so many more things I could talk about, but it, it'll take too long. But you can please contact me with more questions. I'm actually trying to get the uh, a, a blog going, so maybe I'll go into more detail on some blog issue and entries. But let's go back to this issue: Should you adopt or not? So. Some of you should adopt. Some of you are being called by God to adopt. Some of you are being called to adopt um, privately, domestically, within your state, like the first one I talked about. Some of you are being called to adopt internationally. Some of you are being called to foster. Some of you are being called to uh, adopt from the foster care age, through foster care. Not all of you are being called to adopt, but many are. I'm going to tell you this. Many of you are being called. You don't want. You don't like it, but you are, because you're going to have to give up some things. All right. You may have to give up doing fun things because you have to save up money to ensure that you can um, pay for the services to adopt a child. Okay. You may have to give up your lattes. You may have to give up your um, cable TV subscription, which is probably a waste of your money, anyways. You know, consider that. Count the cost. Some of you, though, are not being called to adopt or foster. Some of you are in positions where it, it's not, it's not safe for you to do that, or it's not you're not in a good place to do that, um, or maybe you're just you, your health doesn't warrant that. So if you're especially if you're older, your health may not. Um, be able to you may not be able to raise a child or even a teenager and that's okay too you know we're all we are all called to different things but 
you are still called to care for widows and orphans and the vulnerable. And so how can you specifically within the adoption realm serve? So if you're called to adopt, then do so. If you're not called to adopt, you're called to support people doing that. That means maybe you need to give a little money to individuals who are adopting or to agencies who um, support adoptive families. Or um, you need to find ways to support those in your church and and to really talk it up in your church and to encourage people to look into that. And you're not going to adopt perfect little babies every time. You're going to adopt children who have all kinds of disabilities, who have been through trauma, who have been through everything. Because remember, adoption is not just a beautiful thing. It's also mixed with a good bit of gall, a good bit of bitterness. And so... The beauty, though, is that we are, when we adopt, we are showing to the world a physical way, like a realistic way, a material way that that God is working in our lives and also showing them that, like, we have been adopted. That's our message. I was adopted into God's family, thus I can adopt somebody into my family. You are not better than God. And if he condescends to adopt us, then we should adopt others. And we don't condescend to adopt. Let me let me be clear about that. <laughs> because we are not better than our other image bearers. But those are those children are image bearers. <clears throat> they bear the mark of God and his creation. He has made them in his image. And so they are vice regents along with you. So you need to love them and love them well. So as we conclude, you are called to adopt. Churches are called to adopt. Let me be very clear. All right, churches are called to adopt. Not every family will adopt or foster. Okay, there needs to be an active movement within your church. Not a ministry, not a program. An active movement. Ministries and programs too often are just not good. Um, and I'll get into that later, in a later episode and blog entry. So. I want you to prayerfully consider how you can serve by adopting or fostering somebody, whether to do so or to help assist those. If you have questions about fostering and adopting, please contact me, godsworkdisplayed at gmail.com. I want to talk more about this because this also ties into a lot of the intellectual disability stuff. Um, There's a very close link here, Uh, and you may not realize it, but, but it is. And with the guardianship thing, I think I've talked about, at least I know I've talked about it in the book. I can't remember if I had an episode where I talked about it. And so please be prayerfully considering this. And um, yeah, hit me up with questions. Uh, if you want to like it or comment on the, the your podcaster, that would be helpful. And we will be back. Sorry this has taken such a long time to get this episode out. It's kind of been a weird thing. And I'm trying to think of the next one I'm going to do. Uh, And I actually am thinking about holidays is maybe the next one. (laughs) And hitting some sacred cows there. But if you have some ideas, also let me know. And I appreciate you taking time to listen to this. It's a long episode. Um, I've tried to break it up into parts. Partly that's how I recorded it, too. Um, And so God's work displayed. Uh, be praying for me as I try to work with a publisher, potentially, to get the book published. Um, but I think the biggest issue is the copy editing and, and all that publishing stuff. 
So I just pray for that I can do that because I, I sometimes I'm frustrated with the way it's published and just I don't know how to make it much better. So, uh, yeah, be praying for that and hit me up uh, in any way you can. And uh, let me pray and then we'll be done. So, Father, thank you again for this, this opportunity to, to share. Uh, and I believe you were telling me through Scripture and through life experiences and how Scripture interacts with all aspects of our life and how Christ is redeeming all aspects of our life. Uh, please be with people as they consider fostering and adopting and how they can support fostering and adopting and how churches can step into this role and uh, maybe even someday take it back um, as the rightful place in the church uh, and away from the state. So, Lord, just uh, be with us and uh, let us focus on Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm.